Many of you know this, but my daughter, my seven-month-old daughter, my wife Sarah and I have a two-year-old son and then a seven-month-old Brinley. Um, she underwent open-heart surgery uh, a few weeks ago, on September 15th, actually. And uh, I'm here just to share with you that God is faithful and that um, God sustained her and that she is healed and totally recovering uh, super well. So thank you so much. Um, many of you, many of you have been texting Many of you have texted us and emailed us, um, written us cards, um, brought meals to our house. Um, there's, a, there's a family, the Heinsons, who we've become close with, um, and they came and visited us because their son has gone through a similar surgery. And so there have just been so many of you um, who have loved us and cared for us. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, Sarah and the kiddos are at home uh, healing up, but Brinley and, and the family will be back at church uh, soon. So I just want to say thank you so much. Um, so Pastor Glenn's not here this morning, so I have the privilege of preaching. So I am really, really excited to be here. Uh, and I want to welcome all of you here. And if you're watching online uh, or if you're at the Hangar or you're at the Arco campus, um, we are so excited you're here and, and want to thank you for being here. Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to forget this. Um, tonight at the Hub, we are tackling a new myth. So this morning I'm going to be talking about a certain myth, which I'll get to in a second. Tonight the myth that we're going to be going after is that Jesus is a way, a truth, and a life. So that's something that our culture talks a lot about. That Well, Jesus is a great guy, but he's just, you know, a way. He's just one way. And so we're going to be debunking that myth. And so I want to encourage you to come back to the hub tonight, 5 o'clock in Claremont, um, and we'll talk more about that. So this morning, we are talking about a myth that I think many of us have bought into. That we may have bought into when we were really young kids. Um, it may be something recent. It may have come from our families or our upbringing. But we have all bought into this myth. And the power of this myth is unparalleled. Because what this myth does to us is this myth takes away from our joy. It takes away from the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. This myth robs us of the life that God intended for us. And this myth does one of two things for us. This, this myth either drives us so far away from God. Or it creates in us a religious perfectionist agenda where we are so about our own self-righteousness because when we're caught in the middle of this myth and we're believing this myth at our core, we can only choose one of those two options. And so maybe there's some of you here this morning who you have been far from God for a while. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who, who your relationship with God is totally dependent on you and it is all about your works and it is all about your perfectionist and you get so down on yourself. Well, this morning, we're gonna debunk this myth and it's this, that God is disappointed with you. The myth is this, that God is disappointed with you. So, so disappointment is this, right? Disappointment is you have this expectation you plan on this thing happening and then that person or that situation lets you down, right? And so, and so maybe, maybe you have a spouse, right? Or maybe, maybe you have a friend or a coworker that, that you had these like really high expectations of them, these high hopes, and they let you down, right? Like sometimes like I should be like, I should bring home Starbucks to my wife every day because she's just amazing. She's at home taking care of these like crazy kids. It's insane. So I should be bringing home Starbucks every day. But sometimes I get home and I, and I don't bring Starbucks home, right? And she will, she'll be like, because we had talked about it during the day and I'm such a bad husband in this way, maybe kind of. Anyway, uh, she, she goes, Eric, did you bring home that Starbucks? And I go, oh man, like, honey, I forgot. The, and the, the pumpkin lattes, all that stuff is out right now, and she loves it. She's like, oh, 
letting me down again, Eric. You know, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But the reality is this, that we all have disappointments in our life, right? We all have people who have let us down. But this idea has creeped into our thinking, and it's this, that when God looks at us, that when God looks at us, he is deeply, deeply disappointed. So here, here, here's the tough news, okay? Here's the reality. I just want to be honest with you guys, okay? Here, here's the reality. God sees everything. God knows everything. There's nothing that happens in our life outside of God's view, right? If you look at Psalm 139, David kind of talks about this. He says, you know, and he's talking about God. He says, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, and you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it. So here's the reality. Okay, before you don't bring home coffee for your spouse, God knows it. You know what I mean? Before you say that thing, do that thing, whatever it may be, God knows it. And so this is a little terrifying, right? Because the reality is that there is nothing about our lives that is hidden from God. When I read that, I begin to believe that myth again. I go, oh my gosh, this must mean that God is like on a, on a second by second basis disappointed in me, right? But here's what we're going to do this morning. If we're going to look at a story, we're going to look at a story where we see Jesus interacting with, with this person. And it would be a great moment for Jesus to just say, yep, I'm disappointed. But I want us to watch what he does. And you see, disappointment is a powerful tool and, and it brings a lot of pain. But maybe there's another way. I want to give you a little picture to the kind of kid I was uh, in junior high. So in junior high, I was really into skateboarding. I still love to skateboard. I love skating with the high school students, but I was really into skateboarding and I didn't care where we skated. Okay. Like we would skate at banks and colleges and all these places where you're not supposed to skate. And we would just skate there. And we loved this one specific college that we'd always skate at. And I would get caught there by the campus police all the time. And so on this one occasion, we are skating. It's me and my buddy, Justin, and we're skating at this spot and we're doing some tricks. And all of a sudden this cop pulls up. Okay. And the cop pulls up and my buddy, Justin flees. Okay. And so if you can picture, I'm not, I was like, now I'm kind of buff, but now I'm, I wasn't then. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm this little scrawny kid and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a cop. What do we do? And so I'm, I'm, I just kind of freeze. And this cop walks over to me and he goes, Son, you're, uh, you know, you're skating here. You shouldn't be skating here. You know that. Uh, I'm going to need to take down some information. And so he starts taking down some of my information. Halfway through, I come up with this genius idea as a junior hire. I'm going to start lying to him. You know what I mean? I'm going to start lying to him. It's after I've already told him my name and address. Okay? So I tell him my name and address. And then I'm like, I'm going to start lying about all these facts. So we start kind of talking. And, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a bodybuilder. Or yeah, uh, you know, I, uh, I moved here from Idaho. I start kind of making up all these. like st- I don't know. I just made up all these facts because I thought it was so cool. Right? So I, I, I skate away after he takes some of my information and I get home. And as I'm skating home, kind of thinking that I'm this tough kid, I look behind me. Campus police car cruising down my street, which campus police don't come down your street, right? So he's coming down the street and I'm thinking, like, has anybody ever seen Shawshank Redemption? Okay. Anybody ever seen like prison movies? For some reason, my mom and I used to love watching prison movies. I think it was her like way of training me and terrifying me. And so I'm I'm listening to, I'm watching these as as I'm, as the cop is coming down the street, I'm thinking Shawshank Redemption. I'm thinking I will spend 30 days in the hole. I'm thinking about the kind of people I'm going to meet. And I'm like, this is not the life cut out for me. Like I cannot handle that. And so I freak out and I run inside the house. Okay. As I'm running inside the house, um, my mom opens the door and she's like, what's going on? And I say this to her, mom, tell him I'm not here. Okay. So I'm like, tell him I'm not here. So I start running in. I go, mom, tell him I'm not here. She's like, what's going on? I hide in this bathroom. Okay. Like just like a baby, like curl, curled up. And so I'm like <sighs> freaking out. And all of a sudden I hear his boots coming in the entryway. Right. 
and he knocks on the door. Right? He's got this like burly, awesome, big, scary knock. And so he knocks on the door and, and, and the door opens. And, and my mom says, well, hello, officer. And he goes, can I speak with Eric? Okay. Now, what did I instruct my mom to do, right? I'm not here. So she goes, she goes, yes, officer, let me get him for you. Okay. I'm like, no, mom, that was not the script. What's going on? So she comes in the house. So she comes in uh, where I was hiding. And she goes, hey, Eric, there's an officer here for you. Uh, come on out. And so I'm like, oh, that's weird. I don't know what that means. So I walk out and I meet this officer at the front door, right? And I begin talking with him and he goes, hello, Eric, do you know why I'm here? And I'm like, I don't know, just checking out the neighborhood, you know? And he goes, he goes, no, actually, I'm not checking out the neighborhood. Uh, I'm here because you lied to me. You gave me a fake address. You uh, told me you used to live, you told me all these lies. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, we used to. And my mom's like, Nope, never lived in Idaho. Not happening. And, and so, so she, and, and he's like, you know, you, you straight up lied to me. And he said, you know, you've been caught skating here so many times. You lied to an officer. If I ever catch you skating here again, I am taking you to juvie hall, right? Which in the mind of a 12-year-old is Hades, right? I mean, it's like this place where I'm like, no, like I would die in hour one of being there. And I'm, I'm absolutely freaking out. Well, this story, these kind of experiences marked a lot of my junior high years. I just was going through these crazy kind of seasons in my life. And um, I was angry a lot and I, I was rebellious. And, and so I remember it taking a toll on my family. I remember my family struggling and wrestling with what do we do about this? I remember seeing in my parents' eyes the pain that I was bringing them. I remember the turmoil, the way the turmoil felt in my family. And then on one family vacation in Palm Springs, my parents sent my two sisters away and they said, Eric, we want to talk with you. And so we sat down and the two of them sat in front of me and I sat down and I was just, I was was waiting for them to just lay into me. I was waiting for them to say, you are such a disappointment to us. What are you doing? I was waiting for them because I know I had caused them so much pain. I was waiting for them to just let me have it. Then my dad starts crying. Right? My dad just starts crying. And my mom starts crying. And they go, Eric, your actions and your behaviors and things that are going on, they make us hurt. They affect us. We love you and care about you. And this is not okay. And it was, it, it was for that moment, I, I, this rebellious in me, this, this thing in me that was angry and frustrated began to melt. Because I saw in my parents' eyes, I saw this kind of compassion. I saw this kind of love for me. I saw this kind of longing that they had for, uh, for our relationship to be restored. And that, that, that moment, that, that experience began to change so much for my life. And I tell you that story because I think many of us have for a long time believed that, that when we're broken, God looks at us and says, oh, you're such a waste. Why did I even create you? And maybe you've heard that from your parents, right? Or maybe, maybe your kids have said that to you, right? Maybe your kids said, I hate you, mom and dad. Or maybe you're a kid and your parents are so disappointed in you. Maybe that's why you think they abandoned you. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but, but you have felt the weight of disappointment. And so I'm here this morning to tell you through this beautiful story that we're going to read together that God is not disappointed in you. That when God looks at you, that when God interacts with you, it's not with disappointment, but it's with something way better. So would you open your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, um, to uh, John chapter 8. And we're going we're to kind of get a front row seat to this amazing story. 
to this moment where Jesus encounters this person, this woman, who her brokenness is out for everybody to see. And there are many who are saying they are disappointed. And then Jesus, the son of God, who is himself God, does something so miraculous. And my hope is that this would not just be an interesting story in the scriptures, but that you would hear this morning that this is how the God who created you wants to interact with you. So let's, let's pick this up together. John chapter eight, beginning in verse two. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Okay, so this is important. We're, we're gonna talk a lot about how Jesus kind of moves into these different positions. So, so he gathers all these people. It's early on and he sits down. And so he's sitting with all of these people and he's teaching them. And it's this very humble approach. As he's with them, he's doing life with these people and he's instructing them and guiding them. And then what happens? Verse three, the teachers of the law. Isn't that interesting that he says the teachers of the law? So Jesus was actually the one doing the teaching. But then there's this group of people called the teachers of the law, which should have been teaching, but instead they were up to something else. And the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, those that should have been leading the people of Israel, those that should have been representatives of how God is in the world and how God feels and looks at us. Instead, they are oft catching this woman. And the text, the the passage kind of implies that she was taken in the act of adultery, that, that it was almost a scheme, that there had been this plan for a while that we would catch this woman in the act of adultery, not bringing the man, but just bringing the woman and we would expose her to Jesus. And so they do that. They bring her in and they make her stand before everybody. Can you feel the tension? Can you, can you feel where the, where the focus is in this scene? It's, it's on this woman who's just standing there. And they've just, they've just proclaimed what she's done, right? They don't ask Jesus a hypothetical question. They, they bring this woman and they make her stand before everybody. Maybe some of you have felt like that. Maybe something's happened where your sin or your struggle or whatever has been exposed in front of a lot of people. Or maybe just when you're by yourself, you just feel so vulnerable. And you maybe look around and you compare yourself and you say, well, that person's better than me. Or, man, why do I keep struggling with this? And you, and you just feel like you're standing there and nobody's around you. And so Jesus is sitting there. Wouldn't this have been a great opportunity for Jesus to say, oh, caught in the act of adultery, come on. I created you for more than that. Why? Wouldn't that have been a great moment for Jesus to do that? And, and yet, this is what he does. And they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground. Do you know what this implies? This implies that he had stood up, right? If he's already sitting down, you don't bend down. So at some point in that conversation, when, at some point in that moment, when the woman comes and is standing before him, Jesus also stands up. That Jesus stands up literally with her as a way of saying, they're trying to humiliate you, but I'm not gonna let them do that. They're trying to make you feel like a disappointment. And we'll talk about, of course, there was brokenness and of course there was sin, but they're trying to shame you and I'm going to stand up 
And so he stands up and after they ask the question, what should we do? Jesus bends down and starts writing on the ground with his finger. For years, 2,000 years, even back then in that moment, everybody is wondering, what is he bending down, writing on the ground? Why is he there on the ground? What, what is he saying? Right? And some commentaries would suggest, well, he, he was writing down the sins of everybody around them, which would have been awesome, right? Or some people say, well, maybe he's writing out the Ten Commandments. Or he's writing out, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Who, who knows what he's writing? And, and for, since that moment and for 2,000 years, people have been asking the question, what was he writing? But I don't think it's about what he was writing. In fact, I think it's about what just happened between all of us, where we all of a sudden stopped thinking about the woman and began to focus on what Jesus was writing. So what did Jesus do? He stood up with her first and said, I'm going to be eye to eye with you. And then he deflects the attention. He takes the attention away from her and he brings it on himself by getting down on the ground and starting to write. And all of a sudden, everybody's eyes go to this moment in the story. You know, that's a lot. That's a great picture of what Christ does. Has he not taken on our sin? Has he not said, I will take on all the brokenness and I will give you all my life. It will be me that people will abuse and hurt. It will be me that will suffer the weight of sin and brokenness. Of the things done to you and the things that you've done. I will, I will take that on. So that it's not on you anymore. And this is what he does in this moment for this woman. As he begins to write on the ground. And then this. When they kept questioning him, he straightened back up again. Okay, so he stands back up again. And Jesus says this to them. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Wow. Jesus says this, just this beautiful statement, right? Because he's kind of caught in this really tough place. They say, what should we do? Moses' law says we should stone her, which is actually a misinterpretation of that law. But they're using it because they want to hurt this woman and they want to trap Jesus. And so Jesus could have either said, okay, let's stone her. And then the Romans would have been angry because he had chosen to, to execute this woman. Or he could have said, oh, the law is not important. Don't worry about it anymore. And that would have angered all of the Jews and the Israelites and the teachers of the law. So instead, Jesus levels the playing field. He levels the playing field in one sentence and he says this. Okay. Let him who has no sin pick up that stone and throw it. So all of a sudden, everybody who's sitting there begins to kind of walk away because they realize, well, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. You see, this, this, this woman caught in adultery, this did not surprise Jesus. This was not shocking to him that there's adultery right? This is, not, this is not confusing to him. He gets it. He knows that we're broken. And so instead of saying, I'm so disappointed in you, he clears everybody out. You see, maybe you need to hear this this morning. God is not disappointed in you. God is not disinterested in you. And he's certainly not done with you. And wherever you're at in your story of following Jesus right now, if you are full of brokenness, if, if there are things that have gone on this weekend, if you made the biggest regrets of your life this weekend, know this. God wants to deal with that brokenness like we're going to see. But he's not going to do it in a way where he says, I'm disappointed in you. Shape up. 
That's not the kind of God he is. And he's not disinterested. He's not going, oh man, you blew it again. Right? He's not saying, I'm just going to back off. And he's certainly not done with you. He's not looking at you going, man, you have wasted so much of my time. I'm, I'm, I'm wiping my hands of this. I'm clay. I'm done. No, no, no. This God that we believe in, the God of the scriptures, the God who created the universe and loves every single one of us is so deeply engaged in our lives and cares so much about every single one of you in this room that even adultery, that even addictions, that even pains that you've caused your kids or kids that you've caused your parents, that no matter what, what you've done, God is interested in you. And he wants to come at you in, in a different approach. And so we're, we're going to look at that in, in one second. So, so he stoops down and he begins to write on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I. What would that have felt like to hear that? To be standing there just so broken. Put yourself there right now. What is, what is the sin in your life? What is the struggle? What is the brokenness? What is the thing that, has, that is on your shoulders that is weighing you down? The secret that you're keeping. And Jesus wants to say these words to you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not surprised by your brokenness. But go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus gives her these two commands. He says, go, in that you cannot stay here anymore. When you've encountered Christ that way, when, when you hear Jesus say those words to you, that I am not condemning you, that I am not disappointing you, you have to go from there. You cannot remain there anymore. You cannot go back to that old way of life. And so now you must go into this new life. You must live differently. You must chase after this God. You must follow this God who is not disappointed in you, but who shows you compassion. I want to read you a few verses out of uh, uh, Isaiah and then 2 Corinthians just to reiterate this point that God knows you need help, that God knows you're broken and he wants to enter into that. Check out this powerful passage from Isaiah 41.10. It says this, God says, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God promises to be with us, but it's not his promise to be with us when everything is all right. He doesn't promise to be with us when our act is cleaned up. He doesn't promise to be with us when our righteousness is saving us. No, no, he promises to be with us in the very places where we need his strength. In the very places where we are weak. In the very places where we are helpless, it is in those places, it is in those moments where God says, I am with you and I will be your strength and I will be your help. Or check out how Paul, Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.19. He says this, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see, this is the gospel that God came to earth, lived as a man, fully man, fully God, gave up his life for us, reconciled us to God, took on all the baggage, all the junk, all the things we're so ashamed of. He takes it on himself and gives us his free life, not counting our sins against us. Is that not amazing? 
Is that not the best news you've ever heard? That your sin, that your brokenness, God is not counting that against you, but calling you to live in a new way. Calling you to live a new life. So Jesus says to this woman, go now and leave your life of sin. I'm not condemning you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, God is not looking at you with disappointment. You know how he's looking at you? With compassion. He's looking at you with compassion like my parents were looking at me in that moment of brokenness. Compassion shows up about 68 times in the whole of scripture. And what's so cool about the word compassion is that it it has a picture to it. It's not just a word with a meaning. It actually has a picture to it. And this picture is is one of this. It's It's like that feeling that you get inside of your stomach. When, 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 when you see somebody struggling, when you see somebody in dismay, when, when you see somebody broken, and you want to do everything that you possibly can to switch places with them. You know, that, that's the biblical word for compassion. And of these 68 times, the majority of them are describing the way that God looks at you. So when God looks at you, it's like there's something in him that says, oh, I want to trade places with you. Oh, I see your pain and your brokenness and I want more for you. I want healing and hope for you. And is that not what Christ has done for us? Right, the ultimate act of compassion is as Jesus is being nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, our God, if there's one word that we could use to describe our God, it's that our God is the God of compassion. Not disappointment, not disinterest, not disgust, but compassion. You see, if we begin to think about God that way, it changes everything. There's a sense of freedom that comes with that. It not only changes our own relationship with God, but it changes the way we interact with other people. One night a few years ago, um, uh, Sarah, my wife, and I have been married five years, okay? And so a few years ago, uh, Sarah and I uh, begin to, we get, we get in this fight, right? And maybe none of you fight, but we fight. And so we're, we're in this like argument. I can't even remember what it was about, but we're kind of in this argument with each other. And during the fight, during the fight, I, I just get so upset and we're both so angry that we kind of just like storm off. I don't know if any of you married people have ever had that before where you're like, you're so angry that you're like, and you just kind of like book it opposite directions. You know what I mean? And, and, so, and so we split off, but then it's, it inevitably comes to bedtime, right? So we got to both kind of end up in the same bed. And so we, we kind of, you know, brush our teeth. We're like bumping elbows, not talking to each other. Just so frustrated about something. I don't even know what it was, but um, we, 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 we get in bed and, and we, we have our backs to each other. Okay, I don't know if you've ever been in this place, but like you just want the other person to know you're mad and they know you're mad, but you just want them to know like every second. And so you kind of have your back to them and like, <laughs> do you, I don't, this may be too much information, but I'm, I'm sitting there and you know, like, you know when you kind of like pull the covers extra tight or something, you know, like you maybe rip their pillow away. Like you want them to know, right? Like you want them to know I'm mad at you, okay? And so, so Sarah and I have our backs to each other and we're just like, just frustrated out of our minds, right? And all of a sudden I do the stupidest thing, you guys. I pray, okay? And this is why praying is stupid in that moment because you know God's gonna convict you, okay? So anyways, I don't know why, but I was like, God, what do I do? Like, she's making me so mad. What, what, what's going on? And I was hoping and praying that God was gonna be like, yeah, Eric, you're right. She is making you mad. You're right in this situation. She's wrong always, huh, Eric, right? And I wanted to be like, yeah, fist bump God, cool. Yeah, all right. But what does he do? 
I'm laying there, right? I got like all the covers, so she's freezing and I'm sitting there, I'm just angry, praying to God. He's hoping he's angry with me too or something. And, and, and he says this, I just felt like God said this to me. Roll over and say, I love you. I'm like, no, no, that's not your voice. That's not your voice. Let's try this again. God, I got all the covers. I'm angry. Ugh, what, what, what do we do? And he goes, I want you to roll over and I want you to say, I love you. So then I have to swallow my pride, have to think about the issue and realize, oh, I was wrong the whole time and as usual. And so I'm like, okay. So I roll over and I'm like, Sarah, I love you and I'm so sorry. And we begin to have this conversation that was deeply rooted in that I was, I became aware in that moment, you know, God does not turn his back on me right? God does not kind of grab the covers and go, man, you're such an idiot, Eric. I'm so disappointed in you. He doesn't do that. But God takes the first step. God initiates with me and he says, I love you. And I want a relationship with you, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died. And so in this, in this moment, when we rolled over, it, it began this healing process. We worked through whatever that issue was. And it was not because we approached each other with disappointment, but because we approached each other with compassion. Maybe some of you have tough work environments. Or maybe you have some friendships where, where there's some brokenness and some issue. Can I encourage you this morning that God always approaches you with compassion? That God is very aware of your sin and brokenness and he's not interested in swiping it under the rug because that's not going to help anybody. But instead, he wants to approach your sin and your brokenness with compassion. And so wouldn't it make sense for us to do that for other people? Wouldn't it make sense that, that if we want other people to see Christ, to see God in us, that we need to act like him, that we need to love like him, that we need to approach situations like him? I just want to challenge you this morning that whatever that conflict is at work or with your friends, then maybe this morning you could say, God, what would it look like for me to approach that with compassion? Not with disappointment, not with guilt, not with anger, but with compassion. I want to read you a psalm, uh, Psalm 103. And this psalm so perfectly describes this God of compassion. And maybe I invite you to just um, close your eyes right now and let me just read this psalm over you. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and he's abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows, we, he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. You can open your eyes. You see, your brokenness, your frailty, your struggles, your issues are not a surprise to God. He knows how you are formed. He knows that you came from dust. He knows that you don't have it all together. And when you believe that God is disappointed in you, you'll either run as far away from God as possible or you'll become so consumed with your own righteousness and that won't get you anywhere. Because we need to first hear that God is compassionate towards us. And that when we find out he's compassionate towards us, we can then leave that life of sin because we know this good God 
loves us. I was reading a study this week um, from the London College, and they were doing a study on how does somebody create new habits, right? How do you create new habits? Um, and, and how long does it take for those habits to kind of take effect and, and, and be rooted in you? And a lot of people, I don't know if you ever have heard this, but like some people think 21 days, right? It's like this magic number. Oh, if you do the same thing over and over again for 21 days, then you'll create a new habit. Well, here's what they found. It totally depends on the person. It depends on the person. In fact, they did some, they found out for some people after 18 days of doing the same thing over and over again, they had a habit formed. For some people, it took 254 days, okay? 254 days of doing the same thing over and over and over again before they created a new habit. And so this morning, I don't know how deeply entrenched you are in this thinking that God is disappointed in you, but for some of you, it may take 18 days of doing this challenge. And for the others of you, it may may take 254 days. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to wake up every morning and go to bed every night and say the same prayer to God. I want you to say, God, thank you for looking at me with compassion and not disappointment. God, thank you for looking at me with compassion and not disappointment because we have got to create a new habit. We have got to create a new way of thinking because this will begin to change every area of our lives. This will change the way you interact with the young people at this church. And as a youth pastor, I just want to encourage you. There are young people at this church who every week come to this campus and are asking one question. What is God like? Who is God? And what's scary is they're looking at us, right? They're looking at you and they're looking at me and going, what is God like? And the reality is this, it probably won't be your words that communicate that. It will be your life. It will be the way you treat them. It will be the way you interact with them. And so I want to encourage you, may you find young people in this church. That even as you leave, if you see a junior high or high schooler, may you find them and may you go show interest in them. Would you find out their name? Would you ask them a little bit about themselves? And then every week I want you to show back up to church and I want you to find that same person, that same student. I want you to ask them, hey, How'd that soccer game go? If their name's Mikey, hey, Mikey, call them by name and say, Mikey, how'd that soccer game go? Or how was that weekend away with your family? Because you see, they're looking at you and you may be able to give them the best picture of God. I, I read this quote recently that said, um, there's, four, there's, there's five gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And oftentimes, people only read the last one. So your life is sharing the gospel. And with these young people, may you share the gospel by the way you interact with them with compassion and not disappointment. Let me tell you one more story and then we're done. My son, Charlie, he's two and a half. Um, he's in this phase right now where he'll, he'll be flipping through books and, and pages and, um, and he likes to rip out pages. I don't know if any of you, if your kids ever did that, but he rips out pages and I'm like, no, because I'm like gluing all these books back together. And, and so he ripped out this page and then recently he did this. He ripped out the page and he like looked over at me because we could all hear it, right? And he says this, he says, God ripped it. And I'm like, no, God did not rip it. Like, you ripped it. I just watched you. God did not rip it. You ripped it. And so we're beginning to have these conversations with our son, Charlie, about when he rips the pages, it's not God's fault. It's not somebody else's fault. It's his fault, right? And the other day he had a truck. He has this monster truck and he kind of threw it down on the ground and was stepping on stuff and it broke. And he goes, whoa. He goes, that was really scary. Um, he goes, he goes, Charlie, Charlie broke monster truck. Charlie broke monster truck. We're like, yeah, yeah, Charlie did. Yeah, you're right, buddy. You did break the monster truck. But then he said this. The other day we were driving and he sits right behind me and he's facing forward now and he, and he looks in the, in the mirror and we catch eyes and he says this. 
Charlie broke the monster truck. Maybe daddy can fix it. Right? Maybe daddy can fix it. And when he said that, I said, no, I can't fix it. But that's a great illustration for a sermon. Right? That's a, that, that's a great moment. That's a great moment because what Charlie did is he said, look, Charlie broke it. Right? Charlie broke it. And if you want to experience the compassion of God, you have to stop running away and pretending like there's nothing wrong. You have to stop trying to save yourself through your own religiosity. You have to stand before God like this woman was forced to and say, Charlie broke it. Eric broke it. Mike broke it. Dan broke it. Emily broke it. And when we do that, may we also recognize that it's at that very moment that maybe dad can fix it. Maybe your heavenly father can fix it. That the God who created you has the ability to take your brokenness, your pain, the things that you think there's no way out of or no hope for, and he can fix it and he will fix it. But not by pointing the finger at you and saying, I'm disappointed at you, but by approaching you in compassion because compassion will change your heart. Compassion will set you free. Compassion will enable you to leave this life of sin and go and live the life that Jesus created you to live. So may you know this morning that God is not disappointed in you, that God is not disinterested in you, and that God is not certainly done with you, but that our compassionate, gracious, loving God has a plan, and he can fix it. And that's the best news we've ever heard. Let me pray. Heavenly Father who fixes us, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you're not just looking at us with disappointment and frustration. But that when you see us, there's something in your heart that breaks. And that that's how you approach us. And that's how you begin to heal us. May we be people who embrace your compassion and say thank you for your compassion and not your disappointment. And may we act compassionate in the way we parent, in the way we love our friends and our coworkers, in the way we engage with our spouses and and in the ways that we love young people at this church. May we be a people of compassion because our God is the God of compassion. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for this story that reminds us that you don't condemn us but you command us and invite us to go and leave our lives of sin and run into your arms and experience all that you have for us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.